if you study Dylan, there's many examples where like, in theory, he heard something and then he took it and like, you know, transformed it and made it his own. But it's like there are lines that can be drawn to what he was actually basing something on. And I do, I do think that there's very much a tradition of that and that I fully agree with Justice Story's viewpoint because everything does have a precedent and everything you can basically trace all of popular music to all sorts of precedents and I don't really think that we should be taking such a litigious view of people's work all the time as, as today it's like very common for people to be sued for copyright infringement um, and I think it's too aggressive. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer, but I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. Today, we're going to learn about a really important music and copyright case called Campbell v. Aka Feroz Music from the year 1994. And we have a terrific guest to discuss it, Aaron Desner. Aaron is part of what I think is the best band in America, The National. His brother Bryce is a brilliant guitarist and classical musician. The lead singer, Matt Berninger, has vocals to die for. And every member of the band is just so talented, brilliant, and kind. The idea for this episode arose one night after one of their concerts, where Aaron and I got talking about music and copyright and how artificial intelligence was going to upend things. We're going to talk about all of that and get into the details of the Akif Rose case. It's a remarkable discussion about creativity, how music is made, and how all of this intersects with the law. A reminder that all my episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so that each episode of Quartzide lands right in your email. That's neilkatyal.substack.com. On my Substack each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a paid subscriber, I'm donating all my profits to charity, but production of this thing costs quite a bit, and I'm not running any ads at all on this podcast. We are entirely listener-supported, so please do sign up at neilcatial.substack.com. We'll hear argument first this morning number 92-1292, Luther R. Campbell versus Acuff Rose Music, Inc. Mr. Rogo. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, since the Statute of Anne in 1709, through the copyright clause of our Constitution, through the copyright statute, and until today, the purpose of copyright has been to encourage creativity. We are joined today by the brilliant Aaron Desner, someone I've been following around for about 20 years. He's the guitarist for The National, but that only begins the description. He's the most sought-after music writer today, having co-written several records with Taylor Swift, including the hauntingly beautiful Folklore and Evermore. He just did the same thing with Ed Sheeran for the record Subtract, 
and there's a host of other records he's done, including being half of Big Red Machine with the incredible Justin Vernon, working with Sharon Von Etten, and the list goes on and on. He's a deep thinker in person, and no one is more creative of a musician. He's the ideal person to talk about music copyright and creativity because he is profoundly impacted by how the law thinks about creativity and property rights over it. Aaron, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. That's a uh, very kind introduction. And we're I should say that we're all, everyone in the National, we're kind of super fans of, of you and all of your amazing work and, and uh, advocacy. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. So today we're diving into a 1994 Supreme Court decision called Campbell versus Akka Rose Music. And we're going to then get into really interesting questions about artificial intelligence and copyright. And when most people think about the Supreme Court, the Campbell decision isn't what comes to mind. They're thinking about Roe versus Wade or Brown versus Board of Education or cases like that. But Aaron, for your world, uh, the world of music, Campbell's incredibly consequential. And so just to get everyone on the same page, just a few basics about copyright law. It's literally written into the United States Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 says, The Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And so what this means is that if an artist creates something, they have exclusive ownership over their creation, that no one else can sell it or copy it. And the theory here is that that guarantee of ownership is going to incentivize artists to continue producing new work, and new work, like new art, enriches our world, and copyright law is seen as essential part to incentivize that creation. But that's not absolute. And in 1976, Congress passed a law, which we'll call the fair use exception, and under that, it means that there are exceptions for copyright for certain things. What the Congress said is for, quote, purposes of such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. So if I'm writing a review of a new movie, for example, I can criticize it without asking the movie studio for permission. Or if I'm, Aaron, trying to interpret one of your songs and writing a paper about it, I don't need to ask you for permission to quote the lyrics. So, you know, just just based on that description, you know, you're someone who's obviously influenced by their artists, but also you have your own work, which is so unique. Um, you know, how do you think about just the balance in general of copyright law about creativity and ownership? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it comes up all the time, obviously, because when you're a creative person, and you're generative as I am, where I'm constantly making new ideas almost every day. And nothing, I and mean, we'll talk more about this later, but hardly anything is without precedent. And, you know, there's an, there's an infinite number of ways in music, you know, the math of music is kind of infinite because you can um, combine things in so many different ways, which we'll also get into later. But I think it does cross your mind when you're making something new. Like, is this, has this been done before? Is it familiar? Um, and I've always just accepted that nothing is entirely original and that you're in chords are, you know, we, 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 there's a sort of set number of chords. Um, although you can play them in different ways and with different rhythms, which creates this kind of 
you know, enormous mathematical potential of, of music. Um, but I, as far as the fair use, I do feel that I, I kind of take, I definitely feel myself more in the camp of people that accepts uh, that people, you know, use your music in different contexts in, in, in the culture to, to report and to comment. And I love it when you see kids online or journalists online or, or just, you know, vloggers playing around with mashing up your song with somebody else's song as a way of being humorous or, or creating a parody or, or saying something, you know, interesting um, or just saying they love it or, or being emotional. So, I mean, it's kind of TikTok is what it, what it's most creative for. Um, not that I, I don't, I don't actually use it, but I've seen it. <laughs> um, anyways, but it's an interesting, you know, it is the minute you release music out into the world, you, you kind of relinquish it to some extent. And it's like, you know, the wind is going to blow it around is kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. So, okay. So this case that we're talking about Campbell versus Aka froze is uh, one in which you really do see music being used at least in the way you described, and perhaps more. So basically, the case begins in 1964. So Roy Orbison and William Dees write a song called Oh Pretty Woman. Uh, Many people have heard it. It's a massive hit. And the two men assign their rights to a music company, Aka Froze Music, which registers it for copyright protection. And then 25 years later, in 1989, a rap music group, Two Live Crew, writes a parody of the song. They call it Pretty Woman. And the parody begins with the same opening from Oh Pretty Woman, but it quickly changes gears. Um, This is the way the trial court described it. The parody quickly degenerates into a play on words, substituting predictable lyrics with shocking ones to show how bland and banal the Orbison song is. And so Two Live Crew writes to Aka Froze and says, can we have permission to use the song? And they say no. And then Two Live Crew goes ahead and releases their parody anyway, which leads to this copyright suit. And the question in the case is whether this parody qualifies as fair use. So, Aaron, what does the court ultimately decide, the Supreme Court, when this goes to this court? Well, yeah, so I've read about this and and ultimately the court decided that it was a fair use in that it was a you know the parody was a critique and a commentary on the original song and even though it uses the you know the main thing that it, it does is it uses the opening bass guitar riff and the sort of the initial words and harmony of the original song, but then it innovates and there's a number of new ideas and, and new words and new chords and the, the drum beat is altered, but in, in the in the whole piece is a critique or a sort of parody of the original that is considered to be a fair use. So they rule in favor of Two Live Crew and they're able to keep distributing their song, essentially. Yeah. That's exactly right. And the court's actually unanimous on this. I mean, many of the cases we talk about are five to four cases, but here they say they did change it into something else. This is what the Supreme Court says. Two live crew juxtaposes the romantic musings of a man whose fantasy comes true with degrading taunts, a body demand for sex, and a sigh of relief from paternal responsibility. And so the court says basically the group is providing critical commentary on the original song 
and not just purely imitating the original song. Now, the law says that you're supposed to look, when you're thinking about fair use, you're supposed to think about the purpose and character of the use and the amount of the portion used. Are you copying the whole song? And also the effect of the use on the potential market for the copyrighted work. And it's here it's pretty interesting. This is very different than, for example, the Warhol case, which um, I'm also discussing on the court side uh, podcast, because here the court says, you know, that the commercial nature of the use may be very similar. Here, like the lower court, the Court of Appeals, said that the original song and the parody had the same character. They were both just songs to be sold to make money. And so the Court of Appeals said that's copyright infringement. And the Supreme Court disagrees. They say that everything in fair use, in some sense, or almost everything, is about money and for profit. You know, art is for profit and the like. So the fact that Two Live Crew and Roy Arbison and Akaf all were trying to make money alone isn't enough. That's different than what happened in the Warhol case, because in the Warhol case, the court said, well, basically, everyone was trying to make money off of these photographs. And so it was the same use and therefore not covered by the fair use exception, leading Justice Kagan to really take issue with that um, in her dissent. Um, So, Aaron, as you think about the decision, do you feel like, I mean, first of all, it sounds like what you said before, that the parody here, because it wasn't just taking the entire work, but actually using it and transforming it in some way. It sounds like you think that the court got it right. I believe as the, you know, in terms of interpreting the law and the definition of fair use, they got it right. But my personal opinion, I guess, is that the use, you know, as a musician, that the fact that the musical theme of the original is used verbatim and is restated, you know, so often in, in two life crews version, you know, like da, na, 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 that I, I don't know. To me, it's, it's like, I would never do that. And it, it would feel disingenuous to me as a musician to pass something like that off as my own. I know they requested approval and they, that was uh, denied by the, the publisher. But to me, there's a, there is a, it's a blurry kind of gray area, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think what the Supreme Court says about that is they say, well, there isn't a real easy way to make that line between the chord that you're isolating and its repetition and anything else that basically all art builds on past art. Like they quote from one of our most important justices ever in the United States, a guy named Joseph Story, who's in the 19th century. And Joseph Story said, in truth, in literature, in science, and in art, there are and can be few, if any things, which are strictly new and original throughout. Every book in science, literature, and art borrows and must necessarily borrow and use much which was well known and used before. Aaron, it sounds like from your perspective as an artist, you don't think that's quite right, that there's a difference between being influenced by something and just taking it. Well, you know, I think it's Picasso. I'm not sure if he actually said this, but he, you know, when he said, Pablo Picasso said that good artists borrow and great artists steal. And that's often attributed as something that Dylan 
did essentially because if you study Dylan, there's many examples where like in theory he heard something and then he took it and like you know transformed it and made it his own. But it's like there are lines that can be drawn to what he was actually basing something on. And I do, I do think that there's very much a tradition of that, and that I fully agree with Justice Story's viewpoint because everything does have a precedent. And everything you can basically trace all of popular music to all sorts of precedents. And I don't really think that we should be taking such a litigious view of people's work all the time as, as today. It's like very common for people to be sued for copyright infringement. Um, and I think it's too aggressive. That being said, using that riff, exactly that riff, that's so iconic, that'd be like if someone took the fake empire you know music and wrote a song over it basically it's like you know it's obviously that you know so um that's but i I think where where it gets interesting is this idea of a parody and a, a a a commentary and a critique on something and that's something that is its own genre maybe and that makes it original so i guess that's that's what they decided yeah, I guess. But then on the other hand, you could imagine someone taking fake empire, putting their own words on it and just calling it a parody, um, you know, just saying, look, they're trying to be ironic about, you know, the nationals, you know, whatever. And, you know, even if it doesn't have the same kind of parodic elements as the two live crew song. So I guess that would be the concern is it just would be a gaping exception. Yeah. Or it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, we should clarify that fake empire is a, is a, a popular song by the national that has a sort of an incredible song, a, a very original, uh, layered polyrhythm in the piano. That's kind of like, you know, although that technically was also probably influenced by, I won't say exactly what, but it's not, we're not the first <laughs> to do four over three. So, so. Um, your collaborator, Ed Sheeran just found himself as the defendant in a really high pitched copyright battle. Do you have any thoughts about that case? Um, well, I've, I know Ed quite well, and I've grown close to him, and we've written now written, you know, over forty songs together, and I've seen wow. seen how he works intimately, and he's definitely not sitting there copying things at all. Um, and I think what that case demonstrated is that many many songs share chord progressions and share even you know rhythmic rhythmic elements, rhythmic approaches, and even melodic approaches. There's like, and that's kind of goes, that speaks to Justice Story's viewpoint that, you know, so much literature and science and art borrows and must borrow that which came before. And I think that's kind of what the crux of that case, which was very, very powerful for artists. I think that he won that case because He's been sued many times, I think, and it's it's kind of like when you be, when you rise to that place of having enormous success. There's a lot of people take a kind of you know aggressive, you know, greed motivated attitude towards things where they're just seeking a payday. I think where they they think, oh, we might be able to win here. Let's try, and the, and lawyers go after you. And I'm not saying that there's not fair examples where people have infringed. But in Ed's case, I think it was great that he actually won. And then it gives a little bit more 
latitude for people or, or freedom just to be creative because you can't if i play these three chords right now and write a song of it i don't want to sit there and worry who's going to come after me you know just because they're the yeah. same three chords somebody else played yeah i thought it was great that he fought it because when you are that successful as an artist you do attract these nuisance lawsuits and the lawyers are just hoping that the person's going to settle you know it's obviously an enormous distraction to fight this stuff in court. I mean, Sheeran testified in court in a very moving way. I mean, um, you know, it's just easier to get rid of the headache, but he didn't do that, um, which was, I thought, such a powerful signal for the artistic community. Um, and again, not to say that there aren't times when the lawsuits make sense, um, but this one seemed really pretty far from that. Yeah, so. absolutely. And it's become kind of a a subset of the music industry is like a, there's a army of lawyers who are, you know, working to kind of go after bigger artists. And I think, again, there are examples where it's fair and there has been infringement, but I think there's a lot of examples where it is just about money and people are trying to, you know, target very wealthy musicians who they think might just settle rather than deal with it. So. Are, are you thinking about that at all when you're writing um, or even when you're in the you know post-production stages? Um, boy, could this be argued to sound like X or Y? Um, I mean, sure. Occasionally you sort of think, is this, you know, it's often relative to my own music that I'm like, that I realize that, oh, I've done that. Or, you know, I can hear myself a version of myself in this new piece that I'm making. And it's because mm -hmm. everybody has habits and sounds and yeah. ways of playing guitar or piano or whatever it is. And, um, but no, I try not to, it's not how I make music. I don't, I don't listen to references and then write. I, I really write from this very internal place. So it doesn't often come up for me, but I, it is an issue. It's definitely an issue for musicians of all kinds and, you know, I think these cases are interesting because of that, for sure. Do you think of it differently when you're co-writing for someone who is so crazy world famous, like a Taylor Swift, that she's just an obvious litigation magnet? So is the standard any different in your mind or is it the same? I feel like it's the same. And honestly, I don't because I, I really have never. I think there are a lot of producers and writers who will be influenced by other things or by references. But I, for me, it's always been this, like, it's like turning on the faucet or something where it's yeah. like, it comes from inside and it's often like right. surprising. You know, I just kind of make what I make. So I, I haven't really had to think about that very much, but I, I, you know, somebody once told me I should, I should get some kind of, you know, I should really, you know, staff up and be like, you know, do, there's these, you can do intellectual property searches to make sure your, whatever you've created is free and clear, you know, things like that. And I just, you know, I don't really think that way, but. Yeah. I, but I think maybe part of the reason you don't think that way is you are blessed with a truly distinctive sound. I mean, I can listen to anything you've written at any point, either by yourself or with other folks. And I know it's you, hmm. like there's something really distinctive about your sound. So I think you have it easier in a way than, than a lot of other artists who are, you know, writing and producing in a way that is more similar to 
what other people are doing. I, I guess I, I do have a creative question just about that. I mean, you do have this real distinctive sound chord progressions um, that are essentially you. How does that ma- magic happen when you're producing and you're thinking about writing? It's, um, I mean, it, it comes from a very visceral, emotional place where I, I really learned to play music when I was a kid, you know, and this, and got serious about it when I was 14, 15 years old. And I had, you know, like, like a lot of kids, like struggling a little bit with anxiety and depression and music was this, was a, was very soothing to me. And, um, I think that's when I developed my own way of playing. And a lot of it was just this sort of circular meditative, slowly changing and often quite repetitive way of playing where there's not a lot of times it's just one note changing in a, in a, in a, as opposed to like big, you know, demonstrative chord changes. I'm really more, it's more like a drone and there's this subtle harmonic evolution going on. And it's easy for vocalists to write over because kind of creates like a, almost like a watercolor of emotion for them to reside in. And then I also, I, I really do try to make music that feels like it's about something before it's about something. And that comes from the emotional, whatever the emotional release is for me, it's like, I can't just make something for the hell of it. I have to make it because it feels like it has a purpose. And that purpose for me is emotional. I, I still, and it could be a bright emotion. It could be like, it could be almost happy, but usually I think life is full of joy and sorrow simultaneously all the time. So it's like, there's always two sides of the coin. And I think the music I make, that's sort of what I'm after is like, there's, you know, it might be very sad, but there's like little slivers of light in there. And, um, oh yeah, I just, just make it. And I've been lucky to work with people like Matt Berninger and with, you know, Taylor and Ed and Justin and these amazing artists who pull meaning out of it, you know, pull words out of it. So I think I think you told me in Colorado, if I have this right, that you, the word the the music to Cardigan you wrote first, and then you sent it to Taylor, and she just put words over it. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's how we've done a lot of songs, Taylor and I. And I just when she approached me, I happened to have written a lot <laughs> of music at at during it was early in the pandemic, and yeah. so Cardigan was just something I had made. Same with a bunch of those songs on Folklore, and I just sent them to her, and she, you know, hours later sent them back, and she just, she's a force of nature that way. Amazing. So let me ask you now the other side of that, which is you do have this distinctive sound that you talk about in terms of uh, a chord progression and the like, and as I say, it's not like anyone else, but one could take all of your body of work, now put it into chat GPT or some other artificial intelligence. And while humans right now aren't able to really replicate your sound, the algorithm can. Um, And, you know, we've already seen this happen in May. You had a TikTok person uh, take uh, Drake, basically post an AI-created song supposedly by Drake called Heart on My Sleeve. You know, it supposedly was authentic, and millions and millions of people heard it, and yet Drake had nothing to do with the song, at least in in that way. I mean, he he did in the sense that the computer took everything he'd written and made a new song, 
But are you worried about that rise of AI? I mean, I could imagine an Aaron Desner take very easily with artificial intelligence. Um, I feel like I'm worried about artificial artificial intelligence for other reasons, just in the way that so much of our culture can become automated and sort of, you know, computer driven and that there, it's very hard to distinguish between what's real and what's artificial. But as far as music goes, it's kind of, I think it's interesting because music itself, there's, there is a, there's mathematics that kind of, that exists within you know, music and a lot of the great composers and great musicians of all kinds, they're really, they share something with people that are drawn to a certain kind of cognitive behavior. And when you combine, when you harness that with creativity and you, you know, I've experimented with a lot of software where I sample myself mm -hmm. and then regurg and it spits out using, you know, math. It's like, you can sample sounds that I've made and using software, you can spit out sequences, which are kind of otherworldly, but somehow connected to myself because they're using my sounds. And then I'll write over that. And, 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 and you can imagine, you know, myriad instances of this kind of work that a younger generation of artists could engage in. And I think it might actually lead to big breakthroughs um, and new kinds of music. It's scary a little bit if you're holding on with your... <laughs> Like your, your, your icy grip to your, yeah, some people don't like to lose control or, or, or relinquish their space. So it's a little scary, but for me, it's like you hear, you can hear already if you listen to a lot of music. I mean, like the Big Red Machine record, there are songs on there that I, I that, that where I didn't actually, there's a song called Hoping Then on the Big Red Machine record. And the, I do play piano on it, but almost everything else is just software sampling myself and spitting out sequences and then me editing those sequences. So it's like, I can take credit for it, but actually, is it a version of artificial intelligence? I would argue that it is, you know? So. Yeah, but at least that's one that you're driving the train. I True. think my concern is that some other artist takes everything you've done, puts it into the computer and says, write me a whole new song that sounds like Aaron, but is about something, you know, maybe a topic you've never written about, using a progression you've never quite used before. So, you know, it wouldn't fall under traditional copyright yeah. because it doesn't sound anything like actually what you've written before, but it's borrowed every element of your creativity and put it into a new way. And then it's, you know, Joe Schmo's song. It's not Aaron's song. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it is, you're right. It's like, there's a, there's a scary, again, that's where it probably crosses a line of, of culture becoming artificial and the authenticity of things really evaporating. And it's the same. It's like the way I feel like truth and reason have kind of be, have been diminished in this era of like, people can get away with saying anything. It seems as long as they hold fast to their, to their viewpoint um, in this in the culture where it is now, and where it's so it's so po heavily polarized that, and with QAnon and all these things, it's like people have trouble distinguishing between what's real and what's fabricated. And with music, that is scary. I just mean I think that 
resisting technology, I think it should be, it should be, uh, there should be oversight and there should be, you know, legal opinions and things. But I think that the, the, the technology itself, as it relates to creativity, could be quite powerful. Yeah, it could be good, but just like just to put yeah. the, uh, you know an astro- an exclamation point on this, like you know, if Joe Schmo tomorrow fed into ChatGPT all your songs <laughs> and said, "Write me this new song based on Aaron," um, that would, how are you going to feel about that? I, I mean, I'm I, right now. I find it curious, but I'm sure if once I hear it and once I have don't have a job anymore, then I might be f- <laughs> furious. So I'll go from being I'll, I'll have your back. I'll, don't go, worry. I'll go from being <laughs> curious to being furious. You can represent me in the Supreme Court, hopefully. You know, <laughs> anytime, anytime. A reminder that Courtside has no ads and is entirely listener supported. Subscriptions are the only source of revenue, so please stop over to the Substack website and take out a paid subscription. Paid subscribers get access to all sorts of bonus material, including much more from my interview with the remarkable Aaron Desner. I can't wait for you to hear it. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. This is Neil Katyal. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week.